Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What are crop circles? What really happened to a young man named Travis Walton? What's really behind the UFO phenomenon? Greetings and welcome to the 598th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those wide-ranging questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we bring you some insight on certain aspects of the UFO scene we don't often talk about. And we welcome your calls this evening. The numbers are 800-449-1240, that is uh, from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, and 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor emails, paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Don't forget about our Facebook page, that is Behind the Paranormal. Jennifer Stein is an artist, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and activist, a state section director for Pennsylvania MUFON, that's the Mutual UFO Network. Jennifer is a graduate of the University of Arizona. She has studied crop circles for over 15 years and is a member of the International Crop Circle Researchers Association. Jennifer is also very active in her community in the Philadelphia area, particularly in working for women's rights and against domestic violence. Jennifer's documentary films include Dialogues on Disclosure, In Their Own Words, that's made with our friend Kathleen Marden, uh, the Peace and Outer Space Treaty, that's a real treaty being proposed uh, to ban all, all space-based weapons systems. And most recently, the award-winning Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. Jennifer and her co-producers have shared four EBE awards, and her websites include onwingsproductions.com, that's wings with, uh, I'll spell the whole thing, O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S productions.com, Travis Walton, slash Travis Walton. Travis, wait a minute, I don't know really, it's Travis... Actually. Yeah, okay, yeah. go ahead and rescue me here. Productions or Okay, thank you for the rescue. All right. Well, there we go. So, Jennifer Stein, welcome to Behind the Paranormal on ON1240. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a real honor. Oh, well, it's, it's great having you. So, let's start off with a very simple question. What are crop circles? They are a big, complex question, aren't they? Um, for the listening audience that doesn't even have a clue, they are, I'm going to say, for lack of a better description, wheat, corn, rice, and barley impressions that seem to be like art impressed onto the floor of a large field, often uh, laying the crop in multiple directions, completely flat and elongating the nodes at the base of the where the ground uh, meets the crop in many cases. Um, and they are not always, sometimes it's randomly down crop, but in many cases where they seem to get a lot of attention and they're photographed and they draw large crowds, they are these amazing geometric shapes demonstrating aspects of sacred geometry, Fibonacci sequence, golden mean ratio, and in beautiful patterns that, that often reflect what you might think of as a, a beautiful stained glass window that you might see in, in Paris at, at Notre Dame or something like that. Uh, they're uh, just amazing patterns in the ground, and we don't know why or how they appear. Well, if I may just point out, uh, interrupting Ben here for a minute, those, anyone who's seen the film Signs with Mel Gibson, uh, that features crop circles that are, in that case, being used by aliens to signal each other, that kind of thing. So that, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. 
Right, but of course we don't know if they're no, we signs don't, or no. signals, but uh, Signs was a mainstream film that did capture a little bit of it. It was a major simple circle in a cornfield in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, that they used for that film. Okay. So what is their history, and what is the earliest one that you know of? There was actually one reported in about 1670 that... Um, made it into a parish um, pamphlet, which at that time was a newspaper, in um, an area near to Wilshire, England, which uh, many formations are still happening today. And um, the parish article was sort of the ranting of a farmer, which said in Old English, um, the mowing devil may as well have taken the whole crop with him. Um, and it was a, you know, those were the bold headlines. There was a woodblock cutting done at the time showing a devil literally cutting the crop. But in, and, of course, the crop was not cut. It was just laid. When you read further into this article from the 1670s, it, it explained that very odd lights were appearing in the sky uh, the night before. Um, and the crop appeared to be laid down in this, you know, perfect pattern. Uh, in that period of time, uh, the thinking was if something like this happened in your crop, there was something very devilish about it, that you had been visited by either, you know, the some evil spirit, they called it the mowing devil, hmm. or they were also referred to as fairy rings. So um, a lot of women uh, danced in them uh, and felt it was very uplifting and very positive energy. There's, um, you know, pagan history about crop circles happening. Certainly during the Second uh, World War, uh, when there was a bombing, a major blitz in London, many people sent their children to the countryside, and I've met many people who are in their, you know, 80s uh, who recall uh, being in the uh, Suffolk area or even, you know, out in the Wilshire area near Bath or down near Devices or near where Stonehenge is, and they reported playing in these types of uh, downed crop, and no one knew what created them, and local fascination even in the 40s. So uh, there's a long history of them. There's even a history of them uh, being recorded in Native American lore here in the United States, certainly through the Ohio Valley, where we still have many of them today. Yeah, on the Mothman uh, stomping ground from the 60s, interestingly enough. You know, it's funny, in 1989 I was in England uh, researching the uh, Beast of Exmoor phenomenon, and I was driving through Wiltshire, and all these cars were lined up by a field, and I had no idea what was going on. And I later found out they were, that they had a crop circle appearance the previous night that was rather spectacular and i could have stopped and seen it but you know i never knew it and so talk about uh, one of my regrets i could have seen one but uh, i i don't think i've ever actually seen one but anyway ben has another i have many questions for you uh this one being have they become more complex over the years or have they sort of stayed that that um stayed that course of of their complexity well, we have many phenomenon happening. I would say from my perspective, uh, investigating them from even the late 70s is when Colin Andrews and Pat Delgado started to make them famous and started to write about them in their books, they were often referred to them as like circular evidence. They were simple circles with quadruplet, tinier grape-sized circles around them and things like that. 
still with complex lays within the, the central circle, but yes, now more and more we are seeing things that look like Mayan calendars and, and solar systems and circles and squares and straight line triangles. I mean, the, the geometry has gotten very, very complex. From about the time of 1989, around the, the time of the Barbary Castle uh, formation, which was a very famous one that was a very large triangle with little spot grape circles off the end that were complex. And but the other thing we're seeing is repeatable patterns year after year where a similar aspect in one crop circle reappears integrated in another crop circle a year or two or even three years later. So people who study the geometries are following this um, complexity and rapidity of a certain specific geometry that you see again and again. One wonders about chaos theory in general and uh, the fractal phenomenon in particular. Uh, many of these circles that I've seen seem to be, I don't know, well, I don't know I suppose you have to explain what the fractal thing is. There are certain patterns in nature, perhaps you could explain it better than I could, Jennifer, I don't know, uh, certain patterns in nature that are repeated on various scales. Uh, for example, if you look at, a, 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 I don't know, a, a, some broccoli, the entire head of broccoli, if that's what you call it, is uh, is pretty much looks the same as one bit. Uh, I, I, I'm a, ben, you're a gardener. What am I talking about? What's the term for it? Well, it's a a, like, a, like a Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. you're absolutely right. Or like a golden mean ratio. Yes. Uh, looking into the face of a sunflower is a wonderful example of that. Um, there is a relationship to um, the growth in size, A as to B as is, you know, C is to B. It's, it's as if every time you, you get to the next level of expansion, it's one and a half times larger. Yes. But it, it does that exponentially and perfectly. Um, actually, there was an Italian mathematician who studied plants in the forest and how they grew. And he realized that there was this pattern called the Fibonacci sequence. Now, if you overlay that Fibonacci sequence, by the way, plants uh, unfold themselves or unfurl themselves from a seed, and the numbers of leaves that appear in a certain period of time or number of days, it is almost perfectly matched and almost ident identical to this golden mean ratio. Um, and actually, a lot of the um, early painters uh, studied and taught this. Um, even Pythagoras taught the golden mean ratio back in, uh, you know, early Greece, and, and it was used in Rome as well as a way of understanding proportion to be able to draw the body or the body of an animal or a horse, because all living things use this pattern and ratio in terms of its its growth ratio. So even like if you look at your hand, the teeny little finger in your hand, the first uh, bone at the tip of your fingernail is a certain proportion in size, and then the next bone next to that is one and a half times larger, and then the next bone after that is equally one and a half times larger. And so it goes in the foot and in the hand and, and uh, then in our leg muscles, the same is true, and, and in our bones, in our legs, and even the vertebrae in our, our spine are like that. 
uh, uh, even the teeth in our mouth are similar to that, although they're not all, you know, various sizes in our mouth, but the relationship to uh, position and shape and size is all based on this central mean or golden mean ratio. So we see this reflected in the crop circle phenomenon in your opinion? All the time. Yeah. All the time, you do. And there is actually a mathematical algorithm uh, that can define this for anyone who's fascinated by math and is a scientist. There was a very famous uh, French mathematician. Um, his name starts with a B. I want to say Benoit or Biot or something like this. And he's the one who actually defined chaos theory prior to us or just at the beginning and the very uh, early 80s, the beginning of our ability to have complex programming with computer modeling. And he developed this algorithm to be able to demonstrate things like uh, the flow of water through, uh, through a, a channel or through piping or a weather systems, weather patterns, how they would flow and what would be the natural, the natural evolution of how things would unfold and then grow or magnify. So you could use this algorithm to predict even social movements or political changes or, um, you know, say the natural growth of a crop mm-hmm. or even business projections of what you would expect sales to be and things like this. And that is being used It is. To it some is. Degree. So when, yeah. when people refer to the word chaos, they often think that it means disorder. But in actuality, it, it's really not at all. Um, it's uh, you can Google. Uh, in, you know, anyone sitting in front of their computer and, and watching can, or listening, I should say, can actually Google chaos theory and realize that there is a uh, re- repeatable and demonstrable outcome, and that it's a predictable pattern that can be used uh, to, um, you know, to model. Any kind of outcome, whatever you would like it to be, but it's it's a relationship also between very small and very large if certain factors are in place. So it's um, it's really not chaotic. It's actually quite predictable, mm-hmm. and the word has been interpreted probably incorrectly. All right, well, chaos theory aside and, and the elegance it uh, bespeaks uh, aside as well, yes. there has been some um, concern, well, not concern, but, but uh, there, there, there have been some people who have actually formed organizations to make crop circles. So the question is um, certainly, well, how, how, what percentage of them are, are, are of human manufacture? I mean, some people do it publicly. Other yeah. people will sneak into fields at night with, with a rather simple board and rope arrangement to uh, to make the circles uh what say you on all that well i'm not a good predictor of ratios to how many are authentic and how many are not yeah, no one really knows um it, there are some people who live locally certainly in the wilshire area who can make fairly accurate predictions because they know some of the the hoaxing teams that go out and do these things but of course you need to remember that this definitely is a destruction of personal property and anyone who is uh, found hoaxing or caught hoaxing can be really arrested and spend uh, many nights in jail and pay very stiff fines. It's as much as, you know, like stealing someone's car. It, it can be considered um, a felon, certainly in some states in the United States, for destruction of, of property. Um, 
But that being said, if you are a crop circle researcher and you are properly doing your research, and I would refer people who are interested in that to BLT um, website. It um, stands for Burt Levengood and um, Talbot. Uh, it's a site run by Nancy Talbot. They have done the most scientific testing on the soil and on the crops and on the seeds from crop circles to show really very significant data. Um, there's changes in the soil. There's changes in the plant. Um, and uh, there's changes in the seed and the seed growth patterns depending on where, when, and how the formation occurs. So um, even though hoaxing is a phenomenon, um, usually hoaxing will knock seed heads off or crush them. There will be board or dent marks in the crop. The crop will be broken itself, and the fluid from the crop will be exposed in certain areas on the ground or on the crop stem. Um, and the way the crop stem is broken, it's pretty definable. So as a crop circle researcher, um, you know, unless the crop is really very dry, which happens in August around this time of year, uh, usually you can spot a, um, uh, a man-made crop. You can also usually find peg holes where they've used, you know, poles and ropes, certainly to make a perfect circle or something like this. If it's a very simple geometry, it's usually pretty easy to, to to, you know, flatten that crop with a board and a couple of ropes and a couple of stake poles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the issue of um, um, what exactly causes this, if it's not of human manufacture, so to speak, uh, is um, often debated. There have been people who have uh, staked out fields in the middle of the night and have watched and supposedly have seen lights in the sky. There is a film that has become quite common uh, from several years ago, as I understand it, uh, with with lights swooping over a field and creating a crop circle. But I understand that that, that has been uh, discredited as, as not necessarily valid. Yes, you're speaking of the John Whelan film. Okay. And it was filmed in Oliver's Castle, and I believe it was 97. Mm-hmm. So I know, I know the film footage quite well, and I know a little bit of background story about it. I'm, I'm happy to, to discuss it with you if you want. Sure, I, I know we have limited time, but uh, yes, why don't we uh, talk about that? Because I think a lot of people have seen it. It's still on YouTube, I believe. Yes, it is. It, it's a hotly contested little piece of film footage, and I know people on both sides of the fence that will claim that it is absolutely authentic and other people that will claim that it's absolutely hoaxed. This is the story that I know about that, that film. A man by the name of John Whalen was camping out that night on what's called Oliver's Grave, um, and looked at, I'm sorry, at, at, at Oliver's Castle, not Oliver, uh, not uh, Oliver's Grave. That's a different spot. Okay. So he was camping. He did hear something, although he couldn't really see it. He had a 1980-type video camera that was an analog video camera. It did not have a viewfinder in it, so he really couldn't see anything. I mean, it was one of those things you had to put your eye up to a diapter and look through a, a teeny little viewfinder, which he attempted to do. He did have the camera on a tripod. He had it pointed in the general direction. He heard something. He really couldn't see anything, but he just turned the camera on and started to shoot. He had no idea what he had. Now, he happened to work for a small little video company um, in the Alton Barnes area. So he took the footage into the studio where he worked. 
and he plugged it in. It was pretty dark and pretty grainy. So they lightened the footage with a simple lightening technique so that they could put it more in sepia or more black and white so they could see what was happening. And, of course, as soon as they did, they saw these lights. So he zipped off a copy onto a VHS tape, and he ran into the local pub there, which is called The Barge, and he said, you're not going to believe what I got on film. And he, he ran in and he put this on. And, of course, there were a lot of crop circle researchers there that saw it. Now, because he brought the film already from a film studio where he worked, which was a, a small little, you know, mom-and-pop VHS shop. I, you know, I don't, we didn't have anything like digital editing in those days. I think it was an avid system, which they had. Since I'm a filmmaker, I know a little bit about this. Mm -hmm. And they really didn't have anything that would, you would be considered to be CGI at that point at the studio. Um, the film was immediately debunked and contested because nobody could believe that he caught it. There was jealousy issues and things like that. He actually ended up turning over the footage to a good friend of mine uh, from Holland named Bert Jansen and gave Bert permission to use it in his film. He never asked for any money for it. Um, he didn't even want to be associated with it because he couldn't stand the, the ridicule he was getting, and he completely walked away from the topic. And, and the film footage and the interest of crop circles at that point. And no one has ever heard from him since. You know, I'm sure he still lives in England, but he moved away from the Wilshire area. Hmm. Well, the so, question, now, I, I know people on both sides of the fence, and some people will say, oh, it's absolutely hoaxed, and other people that I respect highly said, no, no, it's a piece of authentic footage. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, the usual uh, occurrence in, in any paranormal event, you know, it depends on who you talk to and yes. what they may be. But, um, but that, that footage does demonstrate what a lot of eyewitnesses say they, they see. Mm -hmm. And when I speak on crop circles, I include the film, and I don't, I don't give credit that it's authentic or it's not authentic. I explain that it's hotly contested, but the reason I show it is it demonstrates what people explain they have seen with their own naked eye. Well, I look and, forward to and seeing for that, that, I think it's a valid piece of film to be to be viewed by all interested in the topic. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing that in, at the Exeter UFO Festival, which uh, both you and I and Ben are, or, or I should say, you're all, all you and I and Ben are all speaking yes. at in September. And uh, the director, the organizer, is going to be calling in in a few minutes to talk about that. But just before we we, we leave the, the subject of crop circles, there there is an issue of. Um, a question of them. Um, uh, there are some who suggest some of them, at least, are responsible, are, are created by uh, meteorological vortices of some kind and uh, yes. downbursts. Ionic spheric plasmas. There you go. Yep, that's it. Yes. Okay. So, what's that about, huh? What's that about? Yes. Well, it's it's complex. Um, there is so much more information available today online and. Uh, amazing web videos these days, but I have been in the pursuit of trying to understand plasmas for probably also 20 years. And um, I follow, I go to the Electric Universe conferences now, I follow the work of Wal Thornhill and David Talbot. Um, ionospheric plasmas are a high amount of charged electrical particles that come into our atmosphere, usually, we believe, from things like solar flares, and they stimulate our upper atmosphere, and they penetrate into our lower atmosphere, 
what's often referred to as the ionosphere, and then into the atmosphere, and there's an upper and lower atmospheric level, and then they eventually reach the ground. And what happens with these charged particles is they tend to travel along what we call electronic field lines. We're not quite sure why or how these uh, lines occur, but we see them. When you look at an aurora borealis, do you know how the, the lights tend to to form what we consider to be a spherical shape. Those are literally coming in on some sort of arcing or gravitational pulling. Maybe it's even a magnetic line. We're not quite sure. But these highly charged particles tend to circle around these field lines and literally create like a a toroidal or even like a tornado-type spiral, getting tighter and tighter, smaller and smaller and spinning faster and faster and also getting hotter as they start to fall from this upper atmosphere. And the time of day that they do this is when the sun is at its weakest. So it's been already dark, right, and the sun is just starting to come up. And as the sun starts to come up, there's this pressure inversion that takes place in the upper atmosphere. So um, you know how a good example of this is at night time. You can pick up a radio station maybe that's 150 or 200 or maybe even 300 miles away because the ionosphere rises when it's, when it's dark and the sun is not there. But when the sun comes back up, more intense, highly charged particles hit our, our upper atmosphere and put pressure on that atmosphere so that there's this wave transference that moves around the Earth in the atmosphere as the sun's coming up. And you can see it visually as the sunlight, you know, wafts across the surface of the Earth, but there's also this huge atmospheric transference that's taking place at this period of time. So that's a dynamic that forces these ionospheric plasmas to spin faster and be almost arced like a spark plug down onto the ground, grounding themselves like lightning would to a a divining rod. But we believe that these ionospheric plasmas ground themselves in areas where they would most likely be attracted. And that is an area that has water under the surface. So it could be the ocean, or it could also be a green sand aquifer, where it has more water percolating through the soil than just normal clay soil. And there are areas that have these huge green sand aquifers we know around the Earth, and one of them happens to be in Wilshire, England. It runs from the northeast coast near Suffolk all the way down through Glastonbury. And it's a uh, large, wide swath. And 90% of your crop circles that are occurring in England happen along this green sand aquifer. There we go. Uh, Jennifer, I'm going to have to interrupt you. We have to take our break at the bottom of the hour. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Jennifer Stein, in just a moment. Hey everybody, this is the Moose Man. Check out the groove line for the best blues, rock, funk, classic 50s, and the Beatles every single week. Tune in Thursdays from 6 to 7 p.m. That's the groove line right here on Owen. Owen 
we will get back to our show uh, right now, and we'll talk about our charities a little bit later in our announcements. Uh, right now, we have a caller, and that's uh, William Smith, Bill Smith from uh, the Exeter, uh, Exeter, Rhode Island, right, Exeter, New Hampshire area, and uh, it's rather good that he's calling in because uh, he represents the Kiwanis Club in that town, which is organizer of the tremendously fun Exeter UFO Festival each year. And um, since Ben and I and Jennifer are all going to be speakers there, it's great that Bill has called in. Bill, how are you this evening? Oh, I'm very good, thank you. Good evening to everyone. Good. Welcome to 1240 AM here in, uh, in Rhode Island. And so let's talk about the festival. Tell us what's going on, and um, we'll take it from there. Well, this is a, a big year for the festival. It's our sixth one, uh, but it's, we are marking the 50th anniversary of the well-known incident at Exeter that occurred back on September 3rd of 1965, and uh, as a result, we're uh, kind of ramped up our efforts, and for the first time, it's going to be a two-day event. Uh, typically, it's a one-day event with speakers and some family activities, but uh, we, we, we couldn't let the occasion go by without uh, doing something big, so we're going two days, and we have a, a huge slate of nationally and internationally renowned uh, speakers, researchers in the field of uh, ufology. So and uh, who are some of those? Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, we have uh, none other than Stanton Friedman going to be there. Richard Dolan, Jennifer, your guest, uh, is going to be there as well. Kathleen Martin, uh, Brian uh, Malehi, Bob Schroeder, uh, yourself, and your son Ben. That's it. Uh, well, our our subject this year is going to be alien versus demon, which is which. <laughs> That's a uh, a subject that's come up a lot, uh, especially working with Kathy Martin and some of these things, because we we started out primarily as as a ghost researchers, or I did forty five years ago, and then it led it, the cases kept leading to UFO connections, which we found very interesting, and so we'll be talking about some of that. So Jennifer, what's your subject going to be? I'm going to be speaking about crop circles, but then I'm also going to share uh, the new documentary film that I just made called Travis. The true story of Travis Walton, and I think we're going to do a Q and A because Kathy Martin plays a large role in it. So does Stanton Friedman and Rich Dolan and myself. So we'll all be there to answer questions and do a very interesting Q and A. I think we'll probably have all the speakers on the panel because the, usually the questions run the whole gamut. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, Bill, um, one of the most fun things we've always found about the Exeter Festival is the, the whole town gets involved, and the businesses, too. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the other events, along with the speakers? Well, absolutely. I mean, certainly uh, all the, the vendors up and down the, the main street uh, are going to be participating and uh, welcoming everybody there. Over by the uh, Exeter Library, uh, we annually have what we affectionately refer to as the crash site. Uh, we, we litter the park <laughs> with uh, uh, pie tins and uh, the paper tubes and bits of plastic. And uh, when the children <coughs> and, and their moms and dads, brothers and sisters, uh, come over and they see the debris littered all over the park, and uh, we supply them with glue stick and tape and paint, and they make all kinds of arts and crafts uh, items out of it, including decorating themselves with artifacts from our... Uh, so-called crash site. Uh, there's, there'll be live music uh, all day, uh, both uh, by the town hall where the speakers will be and down by the uh, library for the uh, children's arts and crafts uh, events. Um, the, uh, after uh, the speakers on Saturday evening, 
We're also going to be having a Meet the Speakers evening. That's going to be a first for us, but an opportunity for the, the, the people to spend some, some time with the speakers beyond the, the quick Q&A sessions right after someone's presented. Uh, there's always not enough time and many more questions to be asked. Uh, I think everyone gets frustrated, the speakers as well as the audience, at the lack of time. So we're going to make some time on Saturday evening at the uh, Hampton Inn and Suites and Exeter, uh, the conference room there, so people have more time to ask their questions and, and, and get some answers. So uh, that sounds looking great. forward to that event this year. It really, really sounds terrific. And, and the, it is uh, to benefit children's charities in the area, correct? It does, and that's, that's what uh, all Kiwanis clubs do worldwide, uh, focuses on children. And uh, that this is our major fundraiser to uh, raise monies for local children's charities. Uh, one of the primary ones this year will be the uh, N68 Hours of Hunger program. Um, and in, in the past, we've done certainly local scouts and uh, Big Brother, Big Sister, uh, Family uh, Y, uh, Camp Lincoln. Uh, in, in our area, and uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. Uh, if, if it's you, uh, we try to get involved. Excellent. And, Bill, once again, would you give us the dates, times, and the website as well? Certainly. The dates will be uh, historically correct as the original incident that actually occurred on Labor Day weekend. This is also going to occur on Labor Day weekend. It will be Saturday, September 5th, and Sunday, September 6th uh, in, in Exeter, mm-hmm. uh, starting around 8.30 in the morning on Saturday. I'll try to get things started up. And we'll be going at about 5, 5.30. A little break for everyone to grab something to eat, and then we'll, we'll have the uh, meet the speakers Saturday evening at the hotel. Our, our uh, website is exeterufofestival.org. Good. Okay, and th- there's a big link to that on our website, Behind the Paranormal dot com and uh, bill we'll uh, talk to you again before it happens and we're excited thanks for calling in uh, as, as are we we are really looking forward to it we're looking forward to jennifer being up there as well okay great thank you good evening thank you okay thank you so, so jennifer very good let's uh begin to talk about a bit about ufos now we understand you had your first sighting of a ufo at uh 19 years old or was that yeah. your, you know, whatever? Was that your only sighting, or or was it a life changer, or what? Well, it 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 ended up being a life changer, but not immediately at the moment because I thought I was alone at the time when I saw it. It was one of those five thirty in the morning, out the bedroom window kind of experiences, and I thought I was alone. Um, but I did write it down because I was journaling in a, a dream journal at that point, and I wrote it down as if it was a dream, but I wasn't quite sure. I ended up talking to my mother immediately after it, asking her if she had seen just what I had seen. So I remembered it, and, and I had kept it in my journal for about you know 25 years, wondering what it was. And uh, 25 years later, I you know was visiting a friend of mine. And actually, I'd spent a year in a road show with, and he was actually at my house at the time when I was 19. He was on another floor of the house, and he saw the whole thing that I did and experienced the same thing that I did, and we never talked about it at the time. Mm-hmm. And 25 years later, he said to me, like, you know, one time when we were cooking dinner, drinking wine, smoking a cigarette, and he said, what happened when we saw that UFO? And I dropped my wine glass all over his floor, t- took a couple steps back, you know, said, what are you talking about? 
I gave him a pencil and a piece of paper and told him to go write a story down, and I did the same with mine. And then we read each other's story. Because I didn't even, I didn't want him to mess with my memory. I, I am a bit of a skeptic myself, and uh, this was when I was 45. I hadn't really quite stepped into this area of my life at, as yet. It was still kind of in my gray box, as Stanton Friedman says. There's stuff <laughs> that has to stay in your gray box. Yeah, heard him so say that's that. where it was. And when I read his report, I realized that he had basically the exact same experience I did. And at that point, I realized I was standing on a big precipice in my life. I mm. could either leave this experience in my gray box, or I could begin to unpack it and try to figure out really what happened and accept that it was real and give myself permission to start reading and studying, going to conferences, learning from other people. And I did so in a big way. Um, that was in 2000, and by 2002, I had started the Pennsylvania uh, MUFON organization in the Philly area and started hosting regular programs at my local library. I, I founded Mainline MUFON, and I um, started you know, speaking, reading, going to conferences, and started making films about the, this, this topic. And... Um, so at that point, 25 years later, I allowed it to change my life. Mm -hmm. Okay. The um, what, what is your overall view of the UFO phenomenon? Obviously, uh, not all UFOs are, uh, I suppose, uh, alien craft or, or whatever. I mean, there there are many different opinions, and uh, but the, the obviously uh, UFOs exist as unidentified flying objects or things people see that can't be identified. Yes, but what they my, are my overall opinion is something is definitely going on. <laughs> yeah. You have to be an ostrich with your head in the sand not to realize that. And it's been going on for a very long time. Uh, no matter what period of history you look into, you're finding references to it. If you're religious, just you know, go right to the Hebrew Bible. You're going to find references there. Sure. Uh, whether it's Ezekiel's wheel or whether it's the pillar of light that followed the Jews while they were in the diaspora or whether you're looking at the New Testament, there's plenty of references there. Um, look in ancient history, go and look at the Sumerian history, it's there. Look at the current day reports. There's Between North America and uh, Canada alone, there's about 13,000, 14,000 reports a year, just, just here in the United States and Canada. And that's less than 10% of the actual sightings because only about 10% of them get reported. So you do the math, you know. Um, if you want to multiply that times all the countries there are in the world, you know, we're probably talking about maybe roughly 100,000 sightings a year around the world, and that's less than 10%. So that means there's a million sightings a year. Wow, mm -hmm. that's significant. It is. So I, and what we now know about, I mean, just I think it was a two weeks ago on a Friday, there was a report that we found a very likable planet where it's feasible there could be life. It's in the habitable zone. There appears to possibly be water. There is a, a sun. Of course, granted, it's larger than ours, and the planet, planet is larger than ours. But, you know, we found it. I think it's 25,000 light years away, but it's feasible there could be life on it. Well, that's pretty significant. I think oh, there's upwards yeah. of 52 planets that they found that are in this sweet zone, and, and now we're honing in on them and looking at them closer. So um, there's just too much evidence if you're willing to look at it. But the problem is we have a big 
you know, a smoke and mirrors game being played by our media and by our government. Um, it's pretty clear if you look at the Robertson Report and the Robertson um, panel that happened in 1952, there was a protocol of deception that was laid out pretty clearly about how the media and how the government was going to handle this. And they've been following that protocol pretty much ever since. Um, there's, there's no national reporting center that's a governmental center. Any kind of research has to go on. It's all civilian-based. And um, there's a pretty strong ridicule factor still in place. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're in the police department or whether you're a fireman or whether you're a pilot or whether you're a general, you know, or whether you're guarding nuclear weaponry. You know, all you have to do is talk to Robert Salas. It took him 25 years to come out and write his book called Fated Giant. Indeed. about what happened to his Minuteman missile in Maelstrom Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. But, but that, that's been happening for, for almost 50 years. There's mm-hmm. Russians talk about this. Our nuclear weaponry is rendered inert all the time. And that's a major national security issue. But that's why it's being kept secret. Well, indeed, so, uh, that may be only the beginning. I, I don't know. But uh, I, I know that you're pressed for time, and we have a million more questions uh, do you have a little more time? I know you I have. Do. A, I, I do. I'm, I'm happy to answer them, and I'm, I'm willing to to do the last 15 minutes. I'll still make it in time for for family uh, services tonight. So yeah, I'm all, all you know, terribly sorry to hear about you know loss. We you know what, uh, it's, it's okay. Death, death is part of life, but we never expected, and it kind no. of throws you for a curveball. Very true. Very true. Yeah. But in any case, one of the issues we always talk about on the show is uh, rather the, the narrow epistemological paradigm that we operate under. In other words, we have very narrow parameters in our understanding and, and in the way we think about things. And when we see a UFO, um, we say, aha, must be from some other planet. Although now, obviously, as, you, as you've said, m- many other possibilities are being discussed, but they're still rather within the narrow paradigm, I think. Uh, when, when, when you see a wispy figure, you know, drifting through your living room, aha, a ghost, it's got to be the spirit of somebody who's died, you know. And that's not true at all. I mean, I don't think there, there are many other possibilities. So wh- what sort of, is, is the paradigm expanding? Are, are there, is, the, is there a realization that there could be non-human motivations or non-human explanations, you know, outside the, the human framework, explanations for what this might be, or, or on the issue of, of life on other planets. I mean, why does life have to be as we know it? What about life as we don't know it? Well, that sort of these thing. are excellent questions that you're bringing up, and, and kudos to you. You're absolutely right. There are only a few brave people in academia and in science, um, and maybe what you might say, the military or aerospace, who are really willing to speak openly about it. And, and one of them is a man, uh, Edgar Mitchell, whom I've I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the years. Yeah, he's been on and, the show. And he's founded Noetic Sciences, which you've probably followed some of their work. Mm-hmm. IONS, yep. the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's been brave enough to encourage other scientists to come together in Northern California and do research on these very topics. And I think that it's only an independent organization like this. It's not associated with a major academic institution that's outside of the, the confines of NASA and our, our space exploration and outside of SETI 
that can really begin to penetrate and make inroads. And they're doing amazing research in, in non-locality mm-hmm. and in multiple dimensional experiences, ESP, precognition. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Indeed. We don't really understand consciousness. Nope. And, and when you talk about you know, the potential of other dimensional experiences, when you hear the presentation that um, Robert... Um, uh, oh, what is his name? I'm having a blank. I'm having a senior moment. Um, I know that. <laughs> Robert, who's going to be time. presenting at the Exeter Conference. Um, Robert Schroeder. Robert Schroeder, thank yes. you. He gives a fabulous presentation uh, discussing graviton. He does. And, He's a great friend of ours. And yeah. that there may be t- t- parallel uh, dimensions that are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. That, that we can literally shift from one to the other. But once you're in the other, you're not in this dimension. But if you interface back and forth between them, you may suddenly be here and then suddenly not be. So um, we're just really at the frontier of understanding this. And we really don't know what's underground and what's under our oceans. Many people say if there's extraterrestrials, they couldn't possibly be here. Well, who says they're extraterrestrials? Maybe they're here. Maybe they're living amongst us. Maybe they shift in and out of dimensions, and maybe they live under the ground and under the ocean. And it or is in huge motherships, you know, in the way, way upper levels of our atmosphere, and they're using our natural resources. It's possible. Well, right? one, one looks back at the Kasag epics and, and the, the, uh, some of the more ancient documents contemporary with Genesis, and it almost says something like that. Exactly. You know, the, it's the in the heavenly abode. Yeah, Jacob, yeah. Jacob wrestles with an angel. He sees them coming up and down on a ladder mm-hmm. from, the, from this heavenly abode. Well, what is that? Yes, it might just be a mothership. <laughs> well, one never knows. Ben, I'm, I'm monopolizing, monopolizing the conversation here. Do you ever well, because you asked most of the questions, I was going to say. Okay, well. Well, it, it, was, it was mostly, um, we, we think alike. Yes. So, <laughs> we, so I was like, oh, I want to ask something like this. And you're like, ha, 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 what are you? I think, I think I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to ask the toughest question of all. What is your next project? Wow. Well, I, I think I have several under my belt. There's always desire. But uh, to be a filmmaker and to be a more professional one, as I have started to move into that genre of being a more professional filmmaker, um, a lot of things have to come together to make a film possible. Um, I'll tell you on my wish list, sort of what's you know bulging under my belt. I think I have a, a crop circle movie under my belt uh, that's a little more scientifically grounded than some of the other films that have been done. I probably have a film about Zachariah Sitchin. Um, I, tr- I got the pleasure of uh, never traveling to ancient sites with him, but I went to all of his educational seminars, wow. and I did film work with him, and uh, I really befriended him and tried to help him, um, tried to get him to trust me to do more film work with him while he was still living. And then when he finally decided I knew what I was doing, it was a little too late, and I was in the middle of the disclosure dialogues and he died before I completely Yeah, we never had the chance project. to meet him. Z- Zachariah Sitchin, for those who don't know, uh, was, was a great uh, sort of pioneer of alternative history in archaeology. Yes, he, he kind of uh, really uh, took the ball further than, uh, you know, where Von Donegan left off at Chariots of the Gods. He, he went in much more depth and Von Donegan was always sort of like a a competitive writer but Zachariah always did his homework in a way that uh, was so. much more in depth. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, there we are. 
So uh, th- that sounds like, like a great project, but let's tie it all up. Um, what connections might there be, in your opinion, between crop circles, UFOs, and sky, should we call them sky noises? You know, oh, yes, these odd noises that are happening around the planet? Yes. Well, I, I have to be very honest. Any answer I would give you would be pure speculation on, on my part. That is uh, so inevitable to a certain extent. I have no idea, <laughs> honestly. I am as equally fascinated in anyone who has heard some of those sounds. If they have not, just go on and start Googling and listening to them. Linda Howe covers them extensively. At yeah, we've time. had her on about that, yeah. Oh, it is the most eerie sound, is it not? There, well, there are, there are a number, uh, but the, the, the metallic ones strike me as, as the strangest. And, of course, on YouTube, naturally, there's, there's some fakery going on with some of that. But, but a lot of it is legitimate. Oh, yes. It's, I, I, think it's, I think it's very real. Um, I suspect, you know, there's huge underground drilling equipment that we know our government has. And a lot of, like, decommissioned Air Force bases, like Roswell, has huge underground systems. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure this out. When you see a huge convoy of black SUVs going into an airplane hangar, and there is not enough real estate inside that airplane hangar to accommodate (laughs) the long line of traffic which is entering it at Mm -hmm. 3 o'clock in the morning. So what's going on, right? I mean, these things have been filmed. This This is common knowledge for those people who are interested in the topic. So maybe, you know, like if, if you look at um, uh, what I think his name is Robert Saunders. He's wrote, written a very interesting book. Um, uh, Richard Dolan published one of his books about underground bases, and mm-hmm. he shows some of this drilling equipment. Maybe people are hearing some of this actually go on when it's a little too close to the surface. I don't know. Possible. Um, but uh, there's a lot more underground that's ours that we don't even know about. So maybe it's something that's ours. Well, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, there have been, I remember, well, I'm a native of Connecticut, and, and we're in Rhode Island, which is you know, not yeah. right next to Connecticut. So there was yeah. the famous phenomenon of the moodest noises, as they were called. Growing up, I heard about this, and I actually heard them, and they were sort of uh, sounds as though uh, rocks were rubbing together, and, and it sort of filled the atmosphere in a, within a certain uh, geographical area, and, and uh, University of Connecticut seismologists eventually came to the conclusion that it was seismological in, in nature, it's, you know, subsurface, a mile or so down, and that this was, uh, there, were, there were a number of small fault lines along there, and, and, and that, that's a plausible explanation. But some of these other things that are metallic and, and, and this sort of business, I mean, uh, do you feel there's any connection between... Uh, UFOs and crop circles or anything of this kind? Because everything is connected ultimately. But uh, Well, have, have you, that raise, you raise a good question. I study sound and the sound effects that can uh, that actually create geometric shapes and patterns in things like talcum powder and sawdust. If you follow the work of Hans Jenning mm-hmm. and uh, Jeff Volk, who's taken over the cyanotics work, looking at that, you can see that sound can create these dynamics. So maybe there's a more complex thing going on. I, I address this in my presentation for anyone who will be at Exeter. Uh, we are really on the precipice of uncovering a lot of new things in the future, but we need to be open-minded as scientists, and we need to follow the data and not make uh, prejudgments about 
the nature or validity of the data we're, we're discovering. Because if we see odd things in the sky and we say it can't be and we don't follow it or study it, we'll continue to be like ostriches with our head in the sand and, and we won't be able to put the pieces of the data together because we've ignored the data. Indeed. Even if the data is difficult to understand, we have got to begin as open-minded scientists in the future to, to be pragmatic and to be skeptical and to be serious and to yeah. connect the dots. Um, and wait sometimes until different discoveries in science can fill in those gaps or, do, you know, connect the dots in ways that we just can't quite do it just yet. Good advice. Now, Jennifer, if you would tell us uh, what, your websites and your, a little bit about your films. Uh, we're just about out of time, but if you could... I would be thrilled and very, very happy to do that. For the general public who will be up at the Exeter Conference, they may want to know about the Travis Walton movie that we'll be showing there. Um, the film is called Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton. Um, you can basically find it if you Google TravisTheMovie.com, uh, although some people tell me they have trouble finding it. I'm sorry, it's, it's TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. Okay. TravisWaltonTheMovie.com, or they can go to my general, the, the basic film website where everything is, and that's On Wings, so I'll spell that. It's O-N, and then it's my maiden name, which is Norwegian. It's W-I-N-G-E, and I put an S on the end to kind of give myself some flight, and because <laughs> I needed one more letter when I started email, okay. whatever, 20 years ago. So I did O-N on the front of my name and an S on the, on the back. So it's O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S. On Wings Productions, with an E in it. And if you go to On Wings Productions, you can read about the film. You can see um, the award ceremonies for some of the awards that the film has won. Um, I'm hoping this film is a breakthrough film for major film festivals, not just UFO film festivals or UFO conferences, and that it begins to open the minds of the skeptical uh, public to uh, consider the seriousness of the UFO topic because um, we are all going to have to face it at some point or another. And I think the sooner um, we begin to, uh, maybe the better we'll be able to handle the reality. Good. Okay. Well, Jennifer Stein, wonderful to have you. Great conversation. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in Exeter and. Uh in, in, uh, in I should say September, about a month. Yeah, that's right. I, it's been a, a rough day. I'm sorry, I'm a little tired, <laughs> but it's great. Thank you so I much for so being with us. I look forward to it, and I am so honored to have been on your show. Thank you so much for calling, and and I'm happy to do another show anytime. We can we could spend a whole hour, and we could have Travis on as well, and talk about the film in depth if you'd like. That would be fabulous. Mm. We'll take you up on that. Okay. Very good. Okay. Very talk good. Have a great one. I'll you talk too. To you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. All right, on Friday, August 21st, Ben and I will be at the Barnes & Noble Booksellers in Milford, Connecticut for the official release of William J. Hall's new book, The Haunted House Diaries. That's about the Litchfield County, Connecticut paranormal flat Ben and I have started investigating in 2005, and that has been growing ever since. That'll be at 7 p.m., and the address is 1375 Boston Post Road, Milford, Connecticut. Already on a Saturday, September 5th, we are once again speaking at the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire, that we have mentioned multiple times on this show, and our subject is aliens uh, versus demons, which is which. The uh, UFO Festival is a very fun town-wide event organized by the Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities. Other speakers will include the great Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, Bob Schroeder, Jennifer Stein, who is tonight's guest, and the uh, website you can go to is www.exeterufofestival.com. 
And Thursday, September 24th, we will join the Haunted House Diaries author Bill Hall for a joint book event at Hank's Restaurant in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Hank's has great food. I'm sure some of you go there, and it will be a lot of fun. That will be at 6.30 p.m. Already on Saturday, October 17th, we'll once again be speakers at the Greater New England UFO Conference at the City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts, where we will present a different variation on our subject, Aliens vs. Demons, which is which other speakers will include. Some renowned experts familiar to our listeners, including Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, Mark D'Antonio, and William J. Hall, whose new book on the Litchfield County, Connecticut case uh, that, we've all, that we're always talking about will be released by then. Uh, the website is susantom.com slash ufo.html. And you can also visit our show website, behindtheparanormal.com, where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts. And that's uh, from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio. But that's about all the time we have this evening. We must say our goodbyes. You are Paul Eno. And I am Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.